Welcome back to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. I am your host, Dr. Mario, and thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your day. Why did God give us free will? Have you really thought about that? I mean, when you consider all the poor judgments made by humans, the evils we have committed, the collective sin of human history, wouldn't creation have been better off without our free agency? Well, by the end of this show, you'll know why the answer to that question is an unequivocal and emphatic no. I bring back my good friend, Dr. Tom Neal and his patients as he allows me to wrestle with these deep and troubling questions. Once again, his wisdom shines through in his answers. In this episode, we go after why God gave us free will, how without it, we could not love, the problem of moral evil, how we are not mere puppets in the hands of a capricious God, and why we need to cherish the supreme gift endowed on us in a glimpse of what our free will may look like in heaven. I know I say this with all my episodes, but this one is truly a gem. At times, yeah, we get, you know, I'm a little philosophical, but you gotta hang in there because it's worth it. You'll walk away cherishing the gift of your freedom. So when this show is done, don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and hit me up on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I look forward to dialoguing with you on those platforms. All right, let's get into this episode. Dr. Tom Neal, once again, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing? Dr. Mario Sagasa, I'm doing well. Much better now with you, my dear friend. Oh, praise God. Any conversation with you for me is a is a step up in my life. So oh, you're, you're, over you're beer, flattering. over podcasts, <laughs> over, over coffee, anything, over anything, over a football game, it yeah. doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> Flatter doesn't get you anywhere in life. So. <laughs> it got me a podcast. That's true. <laughs> I, I know what I'm doing. All right. So, um, question that has been lingering in my mind as of mm. late, I've been stewing on this and taking it to prayer and really just trying to think about it. And I said, you know, the person I need to talk to is Tom Neal about this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, how about I just record this conversation? Because I know it's going to be epic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, so I could just invite my listeners in on the discussion. Um, I tell you, honestly, I, I've been wrestling with the notion of free will and sure. um why free will i mean that's really it like why why i mean i know we need it for love sure but, but why is there no there isn't any other way because free will gets us in trouble but free will gets us in love i mean it's like like it's such high risk yeah, high reward i mean why, like why reward. just why yeah why did god risk why did god risk free beings that are that have the capacity the ability the space to reject or embrace him, yes. to reject or embrace his will, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is the the great mystery, right? Of of all of, of of sacred scripture, which is the mystery that human beings have been given by God as a capacity for greatness and for horror, uh, all, all at once, right? Built built into us. So, uh, kind of, you might say that the kind of the foundational. Uh, metaphysical grounding for this in our Catholic tradition would be that God, when he created things, wanted those things that he created to have their own capacity to, like him, cause things to be. 
He wanted to give creation this dignity of being having a certain reflection of likeness to him. Because God himself is free, uh, is able to cause things as he so chooses and desires. God is able to freely love and give himself uh, to something other than himself, creation. And so he wanted creation to have a certain reflection and capacity to reflect him. And part of that is that creatures have to have this space to be their own causes and to be your own cause. You have your own capacity to make things. What do you mean be, by that? But tell me what cause. You're getting philosophical. You sure. Define that term for us, please. Sure. So good, good question. So uh, in other words, we can think uh, of God as the creator of everything, that God uh, brought everything from non-existence into being right? by an act of his sheer will. Uh, nothing can resist that. Nothing uh, coerced him into that, talked him into that, assisted him into that, in that act of creating everything out of nothing. We call that God's primary causality, that he, by his own inexorable, unchanging, unchangeable will, brings certain things to be. Uh, and that, 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 that what comes to be just doesn't have any say in that. But God also wanted the, 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 these things that he created by another way of causing, in other words, allowing the things that he brings into existence then to cooperate with him on their own energy, on their own volition, on their own powers to freely engage him. Uh, in other words, he, God gave the things that he caused to be, he gave them their own ability to, like him, cause. Not just by him doing the things himself, like we're on puppet strings and God is just making everything happen. That's what we call primary causality, that God himself does it. But secondary causality means that the things themselves have the ability on their own to make things happen. So you might say it's a space that God opens up in his will for things to genuinely create novelties um, that he himself doesn't directly cause, but empowers those things to cause themselves. And I know that's still philosophical language, and maybe I'm not being clear enough as to what that looks like. But, but think about, I mean, maybe maybe an analogy, and analogies are always imperfect because sure, comparing sure, sure. anything to God is, is a nearly impossible task because God is is uh, utterly other than anything else we know because we know nothing else we know in the world uh, is uh, uncaused by anything and is the cause of all things. So it's unique. Um, but uh, when I, for example, um, uh, have a child, right? When my wife and I conceive a child, um, the conception of that child is outside of the child's choice, right? That right. child came into existence, into being by no um, causality or choice or agency of their own. But once that child comes into existence, now that child has an independence from us and can uh, be its own agent apart from us. Now, right. the original cause, the primary causality from us was to bring that child into existence, obviously cooperating with God's own grace as co-creators. Um, but that child now in existence uh, has its own causality. And then we begin this interrelationship with that child where we, uh, in trying to help this child grow and raise this child, continue to make choices for this child and, 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 and steer in the direction of their life. But, but they have an independence where they can do, the child can do now on their own um, what they want to do. As they grow older, that becomes more you know, free and rational and independent. And, and ultimately we would say, the goal uh, uh, of, of a parent is to raise your child in such a way that that child more and more is empowered to act on their own, hopefully for the good, hopefully for everything you've empowered them and taught them and given them 
uh, to help shape their their direction of their life. But now that they they've become their own cause, and that's a beautiful gift. Right. And now that child, as they grow, can turn back to you and say thank you and love you freely out of their own choices and their own. Uh, you know, their own worldview and their own everything. And there's there's a beauty and dignity to that, as opposed to the child just being someone that I manipulate through life and, and control, And right? I mean, I think we would see any child that's raised by a parent in adolescence and adulthood that's still manipulated and controlled by their parents in everything, where that child's quote-unquote secondary causality is diminished severely, we would say that's not good parenting. Correct. We yeah. want the secondary causality, the independence of that child to rightly flourish, but always in relationship to their original cause. So if we bring this just down a couple notches, I understand the analogy well, because I say this with myself with kids, my role with my child is to make them a healthy adult, basically, is another way of saying this. Like yes. their life is their own. Their life is not mine. My role is their dad, but their life is their own and they have to have freedom to be able to make the decisions that they do for themselves. So if we trace all this back, right, God is the, the principle, the primary cause. Nothing created him into being. He exists. Yes. But in doing so, gives creation this freedom as well. Yes. But not all of creation shares this freedom. Correct. I mean, sure, a nebula beget stars and yes. planets kind of form out of the mess of the universe. But that's not the same thing we're speaking about here. Animals right. can copulate and can yes. bring about the next species, uh, the, 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 you know, the next generation of the species. Yes. But that's not what we're talking that's about right. here. No, that's right. So, so those things do have their own independence and act on their own mechanisms. And God isn't there kind of tinkering with all these things, making them happen and animals right. moving around. But they have their own independence, but they don't have reason. They're not rational and they don't have freedom in this, in this sense, rational freedom that we have. The ability to know, to be self-reflective, to be aware of one's own uh, consciousness, right? Conscious of your consciousness, self-consciousness. So reflective, uh, we can know truth and then we can choose to act on that or not, or choose to act on what we consider to be good or, or not, right? We have that ability. So we have a thing we call rational freedom, which separates us, distinguishes us, I should say, from the animals and from inanimate uh, creatures. So the, humanity has uh, rational freedom. Angels have rational freedom they too. They do. That's correct. With that, then, is the capacity to choose or not to choose. This is what has to be there. Yes. Freedom means freedom. Freedom means to, it does. that you have to be able to choose because only in the context of being able to choose, then you can choose love. Is yes, that, that's is that right? Yeah, because love, right. Because love is essentially free. Love, again, can't be manipulated or coerced, right, by the first cause. The first cause can't manipulate the choice and ensure that it happens according to his wish or will, or it's no longer love. Uh, we could call it other things, uh, devotion or uh, obedience, or not even obedience. Obedience is also free. So you can't call all the things that we describe in human behavior, love and, and obedience, have to be free acts that are chosen or can be not chosen, both, uh, and, and do that by rational deliberation. In other words, that we make in, intelligent thought, th thought through choices um, to do what we want. Uh, and to give ourselves to others, right? Because the supreme use of freedom is to give oneself to and for another human being and to God right. uh, as a return of thanks for his creating us. So in the garden, you know, the story, Eve, you know, succumbs to the temptations of the devil and chooses the apple over God in that yes. moment. Why didn't God intervene? 
Right. Good question. So if God, so if God saw that Eve was going to choose something that was not good, was not for her fulfillment, uh, was going to be for her harm, uh, and he intervened uh, on that choice and any other subsequent choice where there was a threat to that, then Eve would no longer be free. Because if God intervenes and ends a choice's possibility in every instance, then choice simply is never possible. But what about like, so let's go back to the, I'm going to press this a little bit because I really have been racking my brain on this. Okay. Sure. So like, okay, back to the child analogy. Again, I know it's an analogy, but if my kid's about to walk into a busy highway, I'm going to grab him. Sure. I'm going to stop his free will, or I shouldn't say free will. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe I'm not speaking correctly. I'm going to prevent him from doing something really catastrophic. Sure. Sure. Yes. <laughs> good, good question. Uh, so, but, look, I mean, it's, it's tough to use, right, the parental analogies because one thing goes, that God can do, so far, for example. I and I know right? their stories. I get it. Yeah, no, no, no. And it's a great it's a great example. I mean, these are classic kind of ways of wrestling with the problem of evil, right? Why sure. God permits evil at all. Well, because what? I think about then, and I think we said this in a previous conversation that wasn't recorded, but in a previous conversation about Pharaoh then. We think of Pharaoh... Like they say that in the the way it's it's written is that God, you know, makes Pharaoh's heart obstinate. Now, sure. again, I know it's ancient literature. Oh, I sure. know these things yes. aren't meant to be interpreted right. the way kind of in a, with a modern year. I get that. But there's this notion that then the plagues come and all of this is to try to. And maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've interpreted wrong. Try to break Pharaoh's will almost to to get him to the point where he can let his let God's people go. Right. Why does he then have this harshness with Pharaoh? to bring about the salvation of people there. But then, you know, the Israelites, but, but then he just lets Eve eat the apple. I mean, like, right, right. No, yeah. So God does intervene at some points is what I'm saying, he, but he didn't intervene. He then. always, inter he does intervene. Unquestionably he intervenes. Think of it. Let's go back to the analogy of the child. So you might use the example of the running out in the road is an example of certainly when hopefully a good parent would run out and stop a child. Uh, because we would assume, well, Lots of things we'd assume, but we'd assume the child does not understand what they're doing, right? They don't understand that Correct. they're running out into danger, so we're going to stop them. But there are lots of instances in parenting, and I know you would agree as a parent of older children especially, where there's tons of things where you see a child in taking a certain path will face very difficult things and may may face failure, it may, may, may face disaster. But you know that if you always step in to intervene in everything that they do to try to prevent them from doing the wrong thing and don't go about other means like trying to educate them or help them learn once they've gone through failure afterwards and grow, if you always intervene to stop every decision, they will never become truly independent actors, T true secondary causes who can act on their own agency based on intelligence and wisdom and will and knowing what really brings about the true authentic good, right? So there's a kind of pedagogical character to allowing evil that's there. It doesn't explain entirely the mystery of evil because you can't explain all of the extent of evil in this world just as pedagogy. You can't look at the Holocaust and say, well, that was a good lesson. Right. No. So th there's no one explanation of, of the problem of evil and freedom and how that works in that exhausts all of the answer, right? There's no one silver bullet that you say once I answer that. In, in in theology, it's more like a collage of answers that give a f more full picture uh, of what is involved here. Um, and then we also acknowledge that beyond that, there is a mystery that can't be penetrated, which doesn't just mean these are things we can't answer, so we call them mystery, but it means the capacity for us to understand how an infinite God brings about ultimate good in a creation by allowing evil to happen in the process how that all kind of fits in and works 
uh, in the end, we simply can't have the capacity to see that. It's impossible for a human mind to have an infinite perspective to see sure. all the all the vantage points on it. Uh, so, but back to so back to the the question of of allowing evil, uh, you know, for a child. So there's there's certainly uh, a pedagogical function to that, but there's something else that God can do <laughs> that no creature can do. And Aquinas says it's something like this. Paraphrasing, him, he says that God permits evil only in view of the fact that he can draw out of it a greater good, right? Um, in other words, he never permits evil as a final uh, kind of definitive ending to anything, right? It, all of his plan is oriented towards a final victory over evil, right? A final triumph, um, what we call in theology the eschaton, the eschatological triumph. Eschaton means the last things or the final things, what we think of as heaven and hell and judgment and so forth. Um, that God, uh, when we look at the, the the particular instances of evil in our life, you know, someone getting cancer or a child getting sick or someone, you know, losing a job or uh, a divorce, um, we see the particular instance of that evil in the moment in this particular part of history. Um, but in a kind of providential view of history where we see that God uh, has creation in this overall uh, you might say, excuse me, long-term plan uh, where he is moving all things towards this extraordinary end that he has revealed to us in Christ, uh, then we see that the particular evils sit in the context of a much grander, larger epic story that these are part of, um, and that we as Christians believe that the story of Jesus, his own life, death, and resurrection becomes the pattern that we see that God establishes to show this is how he brings things through uh, the, the permission for evil, uh, the allowing of it, the allowing of the effects of it, but then out of that drawing great goods that could never have been anticipated uh, that would not have come to be had he not permitted those things to happen. And it doesn't mean, let me just make a clarification. It's important yes, to say that God, yeah, that God does not say, well, I can only get really good things if I make sure that evil things happen in the process. Well, that would make God implicated in the evils. Like he, you know, he wants the evils to happen so that he can get even better things. This is not what we say as Catholics. We say that God gives permission for evil to happen because he believes that the great good of freedom in this case, when we're talking about moral evil and freedom, yeah. human freedom, uh, that that good is so great. There's something so great about that and so godlike about that, that the permission to allow the space for failure uh, is worth the greatness of what he will one day draw out of all of this um, for the glorification of his name and for the glorification of, of, all, of all creatures. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Mario here and I'm taking a quick break from my interview with Dr. Tom Neal about free will to just encourage you, remind you again to follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I regularly post reflections about life, movie reviews, and culture. It's also the best way to stay connected with me and know if I'm coming into your area to give a talk or a retreat. I look forward to dialoguing with you there on those platforms. So if we stay focused in on moral evil, which would not evil as a whole, evil not as natural we are, evil and all not that natural, thing, exactly, yes. not cancer, uh -huh. not tsunamis. I mean, mm -hmm. just in terms of a failure Correct. of decisions, um, an evil that we that we choose. Going back to this topic of free will, I mean, some of the reason that I've really been str struggling with this in myself is like 
if this is really it, okay, and if, if free will is the supreme gift that God has given to me because only in my capacity to choose and to have agency, that's, like, that's, that's the, the, the best way that I can love him. That's the only way that I can love him. The only way, yeah. The only way that I can love him. You know, that, that puts a lot of responsibility on me as a person it to does. make sure that I'm actually like living yeah. day to day with the best that I possibly can. Yeah. And not to fall into any sort of scruple about it. I'm, no, I'm no, really no, not no, trying no. to obsessive make anybody it would be no. obsessive or scruple. You know, I don't want to ch- cause it in anybody. But the reality is like, how, like, I don't know if this is the right way of saying it, like, how careful am I with my agency? Like, yeah. how, like how, sure. how, how intentional am I really about living each moment yeah. um, as a way of being able to glorify God? Yeah. No, that's powerful. Yeah. That there is the weightiness of freedom is, I mean, is immense, right? The weightiness of freedom is immense. Uh, the gift is immense. Uh, what, what God has entrusted us with by making us free and and ju- I think just being aware, first of all, of the grandeur of of freedom and what it makes us capable of in terms of goodness, and in terms of just a sense of profound respect that the Creator has for His creature, that He wishes the creature to have the dignity of the capacity to say yes or no, to respond freely. Uh, there's a gentleness to God in that sense, a gentlemanliness, you might say as well. Um, that's really that's really magnificent. Um, so I, I completely agree with that. And, and I'd also say this, um, there's a principle in physics that's popularly known as the butterfly effect. Um, and I, I won't explain it as well as my son, Nicholas, <laughs> who studies physics in college, who explained it to me really well. It was really brilliant. And then I forgot everything he said because the language was not mine. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the point is, is that small changes uh, uh, in small scale kind of physical environments um, down the road, make large scale changes in larger environments. So the butterfly effect analogy is a butterfly in Ecuador takes off from a a flower and flaps its wing. And that small movement of molecules in the atmosphere leads to several other changes and other changes and other changes, which eventually lead to the spinning up of a hurricane uh, off of uh, the coast of West Africa. So, so in other words, our freedom, uh, which fits into that kind of pattern, but but freedom being not a physical reality only, but a spiritual reality affects the spiritual world as in ter- as well as the the, the physical world. And, and a nice analogy I like to use from scripture of that, among many that can be drawn, is Abraham. There's a beautiful the text in, in in Genesis where God calls Abraham from his city of Ur with Sarah and and his uh, his nomadic you know clan. Uh, God calls him to go west to Canaan to go to this land that he wants to show him. And the text very simply says, and Abram went, right? In other words, he freely chose to respond to that voice and he went. And by him going west, all of history changed. Right. I mean, we're sitting here talking right now because Abram went. It's awesome. Yes. So that one choice. But the thing is, you know, there's no doubt that certain people have more decisive kind of universal effects um, in God's providence on history. That's the way it works. But it's true that every single human choice has the same capacity to influence immensely, immense numbers of of things in history in the future um, that we can't have any capacity to understand. You know, when Mary said, uh, let it be done to me according to thy word, 
the word, the eternal son of God became flesh and God himself became something he was not. Uh, forever God would be human. God would never revoke that because of that one choice. Now, those are paradigmatic, right? They're, they're kind of exemplary moments, but they are for all of us. And the weight on our decisions without getting scrupulous or obsessive, every choice that we have the opportunity to make every day um, is a big deal. And again, because we've read these stories so often, we forget that they had choice yes, in each of these of moments. Abram didn't have to go. No. Mary didn't have to say yes. Absolutely not. She could have said no. She could have said no. And he that would have, have changed no. things. And there's lots of scriptural examples of people who did say no. Yes. And were disastrous resu- responses, et cetera. But yes, right. they did not have to say yes. So what about Jesus? And Jesus, oh, yes. <laughs> you had to ask that, Come didn't on, he, you? you left it right there. You Come on, to say. man. Yes, well, Jesus is a unique case. <laughs> Jesus is somewhat unique in Scripture. Because Jesus, well, I don't want to get too much into this language because I, I don't even know if I understand it uh, in terms of, but Jesus is a divine person who takes on a human nature. He's not a human person, right? right? Each of us is a human person. The center of me that says I, you know, I am Tom Neal, uh, is the human person, created human person, me. But when Jesus says I, it's the divine person that says I, but with a human nature, a fully human nature in every single way. So so Jesus, in the strictest sense of the term, uh, Jesus could not say no to the will of God because he was himself, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. But but he could in the sense that because of primary causality, there's freedom. Correct. Always. So there's, there's freedom no, always. So there's no tension in that. No, there's no tension in that. Right. So he is, by assuming a human nature, by becoming man, he assumes secondary causality to himself. His human nature is part of the created order's secondary causality. So Jesus is both primary and secondary causality. Reconciled stop. perfectly. Stop talking. <laughs> himself. And, and if you have, are, your eyes are crossing right now. Holy smoly. <laughs> don't blame you. It's incredible <laughs> it's mind-blowing so all of these antinomies all these tensions that we talk about here in jesus are all found and in him they're reconciled which is why i love um saint thomas aquinas and saint maximus the confessor both talk about the agony in the garden as this extraordinary window into this tension between primary and secondary causality between creation and creator all of which are present in jesus in the garden so jesus allows himself to experience in himself all of the rebellion of the whole human race uh, against evil, suffering, death, all the consequences of sin. Uh, he allows himself to experience all of it. And in the garden, um, I always say in his prayer in the garden, which is the most remarkable prayer of Jesus for me in the entire four gospels, um, he, the one who throughout the gospels predicted three times his passion. When Peter said, God forbid you go through that, he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. At the Last Supper, he says, this is my body, which will be given up for you, my blood shed for you. So he's fully ready. He knows this is the reason he was sent into the world. And then when the moment comes, he says, Father, take it away. Like he knew. I mean, he, he knew. He's, he's, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, he yeah. experienced all of the power and weight of that extraordinary struggle, not only of evil and all that was impending for him to carry on himself the sins of the world and what that meant, every human suffering and sin, et cetera, he was going to himself bear now in himself um, on the cross, uh, but also the tension that exists between the human will and the divine will, that that struggle to come to a free embrace uh, and to believe. And this is, this is the lie that Satan put into Eve's mind. 
the lie that he put in is if, I mean, there's several lies, but one of them is if you give your will over to him, you'll be a slave. You will no longer be free. You'll have given up freedom. Whereas the truth is, because God is the architect of freedom, when you give your will over to him, he who is free himself, then you become supremely free. Just like in a marriage, when you give yourself completely to your wife by vow, absolutely, totally, I am yours, that by doing that, I become fully myself in the process. That's the mystery of the union of love. Right. Not the union of natures, but the union of love, uh, which is what Christ evidences there. So all the tensions of, of secondary primary causality, the problem of evil, all of that pulls into Christ in that moment, all so, of it. So when Jesus says, um, again, my mind's going blank right now, but let, let this cup pass. Yes. Um, but let your will be done. Yes. Um, that's what you're speaking about. That's what I'm speaking about. Thank you for being very specific. Yes. So when he says, let this cup pass from me, which is what he's saying is, is the the passion that I'm about to endure, the thing I've been predicting all this time, the reason I came into the world. He's asking if it's possible for the father to let him not undergo that, to allow it. But then the perfect resolution to that is the final submission to the father's will. So is the father's will uh, but not my will, but yours be done. Why? Um, because I have no choice. No, because I know in supremely surrendering my will to that, that the greatest good will emerge, right? So the greatest good. Now, he could have avoided the particular evil of the suffering, death, uh, and burial, and descent into hell. He could have avoided that uh, by having the cup pass. But the Father, by letting him pass through that in an act of obedience and love for the human race and of mercy— uh, drew out of that the supreme good, which is the rescue of the entire creation, along with Christ himself and his own humanity, the rescue of the entire thing for us, so that the answer to his prayer was, first of all, directed to himself, save me, but ultimately the Father said, to save you, I have to save everything, because if I don't save everything, you're not saved, son. <laughs> That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. <laughs> It's, it really is. Oh, <laughs> and that's why, Mario, you can't talk about any of this unless uh, the problem of evil, suffering, freedom, unless you talk about the new creation and this, 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 right. th that's, that's the goal of everything. Right. Heaven was not plan B. The next world is not plan B. The new heavens and the earth is not plan B. Like, okay, they screwed up the first one. So, but the whole, that was, that was the plan from the beginning. But so then why, why aren't we just there? Why aren't we just born into heaven? Right. So we don't just get it, right? Yeah. Because, because again, back to secondary causality, to reverence the dignity of him wanting us to be genuine causes ourselves, he wants the world that we live in with him to be our work and his together. Yeah. Oh my God, have mercy. I mean, he wants it to be a cooperative work. And, and think about it in your life. Um, when you, as a child growing up, when your father would instead of going in the, in the, in the wood shop and building something for you and coming into your room and going here, here's, here's this gift. And here's another one. Here's another one. Inviting your son uh, into the wood shop with you and you create it together and you look at each other and you think, is this, is this infinitely more beautiful because we made it together and this is our product. And my love for you now is infinitely more deep now and yours for me because we built this together. And so heaven would not be heaven if we hadn't built it together. And it's such cost. I mean, such cost. Diamonds are made under excruciatingly powerful pressure. Uh, this is the cost of the beauty of the new creation, is that love uh, proves itself through the refining power of suffering and through the surrender to God, which is the ultimate act of saying, I trust that you are love, no matter how dark everything is. So two things stirring within my heart right now as, as we're speaking, and hopefully we can get to both of them. The first one, though, is 
kind of popular within Christian Catholic circles is when people say, well, it wasn't me, it was the Holy Spirit or oh, we're yeah. so quick to deflect things or say, sure we are. you know, and yes. what's a, what's a prayer? Um, you know, I just need to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit speak. Yes, you yes. know, we kind of make these kind of deferential sure. statements. Yeah. And I don't think that really fits with the it narrative doesn't. that you're speaking about right now. No, it doesn't. Uh, I've never quite enjoyed that. I've always found that to be kind of a dismissive of our own freedom yes. and action in this. Yes. It's somehow that you said this earlier, but I think some people genuinely believe that. I think we just, we pray and God kind of as a puppeteer will just kind of put us on a conveyor belt and lead us through yeah. and it, the Holy Spirit kind of takes care of everything. And then we're just kind of, you know, God's my co-pilot or something, or God's the pilot, I'm the co-pilot, whatever. I'm yes. just, I'm just sitting in the passenger seat of my own life. And he's doing it all. And he's doing it all. So, and and then in order to glorify him, I have to deny any, any contribution on my part. You know, um, I, I think, you know, so let me say, first of all, in terms of the, you might say the rhetoric of piety, right? There's something beautiful to that in piety. You know, you can sure. say that. And is it kind of, because it's, it's, it's making sure that to get to God be the glory. It's making sure that we admit that God is the Correct. source and cause of all things. And, that, and that's beautiful. And I love that. Um, but I, as I said to a, a friend of mine who is um, Catholic, who converted from um, a former Protestantism that was heavily, heavily Calvinist, meaning influenced by the Protestant theologian, John Calvin. I said, you know, you, to glorify God, you don't have to denigrate creation, right? This is a beautiful thing in Catholicism. You don't have a, you don't have to make that choice. You know, to say God is great. You don't have to say I'm a wretch. Uh, you can say you're a wretch and that's fine. Cause you probably are a wretch. <laughs> Thanks Tom. <laughs> well, I know you're a wretch cause I know you well, but, <laughs> but I'm wretcheder than you. Wretcheder? Yes. I just made it up. Yeah. 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 yeah you know, Catholics either, or, you know, get into the wretched con who sent, who sinned worse in the past. You know, I don't like doing that. But anyway, uh, we don't have to denigrate creation to exalt the creator. We don't have to denigrate our, our role in causing things to happen in order to show that God is the, is the great giver of that. So, yeah, to say, you know, it's all about the Holy Spirit. It's what he wanted. It's what I just stand out of the, get out of the way and let him do his work. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. But it also, in a, in a way, it's kind of, it's kind of a, an easy out, right? It's like my right. responsibility is gone then, right? Because, you know, if it didn't work out, then it wasn't God's plan. Well, it's not that simple. <laughs> It might have been Why God's, isn't it? It might have been God's plan, on. and you screwed it up. <laughs> you just didn't do the work. You didn't work. You know, we don't know all that stuff, but we have to take responsibility on, on the on the side of saying, I can't just write it off that if it didn't happen, it wasn't God's will. It's it's not that simple because you know we can freely choose to not carry out God's will in our life, and that's you know God's plan works through all of it. But we don't blame that on God and say that right. But we also want to you know. So if someone says you know if I say great job. And they say, thank you. Um, it's not taking anything away from God. It's saying that of my own agency, you know, of course, under grace and all those things, we could put caveats in, you know, I couldn't do this without the grace of God. But I did this. I genuinely did this. And that's part of the dignity of what God has given me, you know, in discerning a vocation, right? Um, there, there's a certain, we could talk about this separately. And I know you have some brilliant podcasts with Father Rafferty and others on this. But there's a certain beauty in the fact that discerning a vocation is not just about carrying out a pre-written will that God has that's a script and we got to figure it out. If we, don't, if we get the wrong script, or we're, we're lost. But there's a genuine novelty and creativity that God wants us to bring to our vocation where we, you know, we contribute to the unfolding of his plan genuinely as real causes, as people who freely, you know, uh, unfold his plan in a way that's unique to us. So I, I think, yeah, I think it's... It, there's some says beauty to you know to attributing things to to God's grace, but but it can be an evasion of of responsibility and owning responsibility. But it can also be 
uh, a denigrating of the dignity of being a genuine cause. You did this. You really did this. And isn't it magnificent that God allowed you to do this as your own agent and, and that you you contribute to his glory in a Amen. way that only you can. Well done, good and faithful servant. I That's mean, there's it. there's blessings that are there that we should be able to receive. Yes. And not just, but I think sometimes we're so scrupulous as Catholics. We're like, we're so good at feeling bad that we don't know what it means to actually receive praise, you know? It's like, we all point. love to Lent, yeah, but nobody good. likes to Easter. You know, that's funny. It's like, yeah. we can say, oh, okay, thank you. And just receive the compliment or to have a little bit of sense of satisfaction. Because I think sure. we're so afraid that if we feel satisfied in our efforts, that somehow that's going to lead us right to pride, right. which is going to lead us right to sin. Right, exactly. Now, that, that's a great point. We're good at feeling bad about ourselves, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and but there's also a, there's also a, a, a it could be a twisted side to that, right? Which is where when we talk about what we aren't or how we failed or, or you know the, it it draws more attention to us, so we right. kind of get attention out of that, right? This kind of in a culture that values humility, being humble can be very rewarding. <laughs> Stop it. I'm so serious. <laughs> You're so funny. Uh, it's I, I true. Just, it can be, it's, it's just, you got to be careful of this stuff, right? You know, the, the, the famous thing that uh, I, I forget, I mean, I'm forgetting who said it right now. Is, it might have been Sheen, but Sheen says, you know, as soon as you claim humility, you've lost it. Right, of course. You know, because right. it's the ultimately transparent video. You, right, it, right. It, it means being, it's, it's irrelevant, yeah, right? With you. you just acknowledge reality and you move on. And you move on. That's the That's way it, it is. Yeah, thank you. I did a good job. It feels great. That's it. Exactly. Awesome. And God, Let's keep going. And, and I hope God rewards me for this because I he gave so. me the ability yeah. to choose and he rewards my choices. So that's they, right. That's magnificent. So to that end, I'll, I'll be honest, like I have a podcast in case you didn't know. We're, what? We're, we're I hope you do. <laughs> I hope I do. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh God, that was so bad. My kids would oh, they'd be groaning. I'm the pun king. It's horrible. Not the sun king. Uh, uh, pun. Sorry. <laughs> Oh Lord. Um, and, and I give talks and lectures all over. Um, how do I know I'm right? (laughs) (laughs) You got to talk to me first. Well, that's why 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 you're here. Exactly. That's that's why you're on the show. No, I'm being serious. Cause like, you know, we've had lots of conversations about people who are sincere in their efforts and that they sure. fundamentally believe that they're right. And sure. they believe that they're following the will of God within their own heart, but that they're not, they're not following the will of God. Right. <laughs> but they don't know that. Yeah. They're ignorant. How do I make sure I'm not ignorant? <laughs> we are. We're all, we're all ignorant. Well, okay, See, that's, well, there the, it is. that's the beginning. Like Socrates says, the beginning of wisdom is to say you're ignorant. Well, there I mean, it you, is. Well, you, then, and I'm willing to perfect. be corrected. That's yes. the key to me is you're willing yeah. to be corrected. That's it. By the tradition um, by those who are wiser than me, by those who are not wiser than me. I want to be corrected by everyone and anyone. I'm open to it and I'm open to the pursuit of truth. And I know where, you know, as Catholics, we know where sources of truth are, right? Scripture and tradition, you know, you know, so for example, in this kind of question about causality and how that all works and freedom and God and, and creation. And I mean, we have Thomas Aquinas kind of becomes a touchstone, right? Aquinas becomes kind of the the way that you say, okay, as a Catholic, when we think about things, Aquinas should be a place you always go as a touchstone to say, you know, what does he have to say about that? But he's not the only one, though, by the way, because there's some people who are so Thomistic, they forget there's actually other thinkers in the tradition. Uh, he's actually one little, he's chip of the window, the rose window, he's one chip of glass, he just happens to be particularly bright. But but we have sources like that. But but to me, it's 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 not hardening yourself in your position, always being open to the quest and unfolding of truth. It's a, I mean, the, the, the pursuit of truth is always a pursuit uh, until the next life when we have the vision of all things in the light of glory, when we see things as they are 
and all we're and, and divine judgment corrects all our errors, right? That's what the last judgment is. The last judgment, in a sense, is God correcting and exposing every error, every lie, every untruth, et cetera, and, and bringing that to final judgment and then exposing all things in their truth, uh, beauty, and goodness in the next world. But in this world, I have to always be open to that. I mean, that's Whenever someone shuts down and assumes they're right and then takes a posture like that of arrogance towards others, um, I have no time for that. Just one last quick break from my conversation with Dr. Tom Neal to make a plug for his blog, neilobstat.wordpress.com. If you have not read his blog, you are missing out on some of the best reflections of faith in married life in the church today period. Bar none. That's it. (laughs) Dr. Neal's blogs range from regular thoughts about his wife and his kids or his admiration for 21 Pilots, which if you didn't know, is his favorite band. So check him out at neilobstat.wordpress.com and a link to the website will be below in the show description. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, I think is is we have to walk with freedom, but walk boldly and in, with confidence. How how then do we know again that we are following the Holy Spirit and that the decisions that we're making are like what what's what's good practice here when sure. it comes to the spiritual life and not discerning big decisions yeah, like yeah, the, right, the life. Right. But I mean, like in, in in the little ways, how how day-to-day do we day to day things walk boldly sure. with the Lord? And it's a great question. Time. So you know, you have the Ignatian discernment of spirits. Yeah, you, you look for signs of desolation and consolation. Do you have a sense of peace? Do you have a sense of right uh, of, of being of being led led to to do God's will? Uh, joy, you know, fruits of the Holy Spirit present. Those are those are all important things to be aware of. But I, I like to say that the the easiest touchstone uh, to always go back to. It's simplistic, it's simple, and it's utterly true. Is that in everything, if you can constantly make the reflective judgment, am I loving God and neighbor as best I can in every moment in this situation, regardless of what the specifics or details of the decisions or things that I'm doing are, if I'm if I see myself as as I understand the good in this case, trying to will the good of others, trying to bring about good for others, um, and trying to do do God's will as I know it. Um, and I'm willing to open myself to repent for things that I see I fail in. Um, if I can do that in every moment, I can be pretty sure that I, I'm, I'm in God's will, at least through my desire to do his will, right? I want to do his will, which is ultimately to love uh, uh, those around me. So I, I, for me, that's the touchstone of every moment, right? I'm always open to correction. I'm always open to kind of growing uh, in the moment, um, but as much as I'm trying in the moment to be as loving as I am, as I can be with those around me, um, and to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, um, and, and, and live the, the, those kind of foundational truths, I feel that I can be at peace knowing that, um, and surrendering myself to God's mercy. But, but again, looking for the signs, uh, you know, in yourself of God's will, especially, I think the sign of, of a sense of peace, uh, um, uh, a, a sense of peace that you, uh, as best you can judge in the moment, are doing what you know is best uh, so as this a man of faith, as a woman of faith. speaks about, obviously, the need for an interior life. It does. And the need of having a profound connection with the Lord and trust in relationship with, 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 with God so that you can understand how God speaks to you. Because you, you say peace, but there are sometimes where, I mean, we we're talking about Jesus a few minutes ago, 
there wasn't a lot of peace when he was making that prayer, but there was a very good point confident that he was doing the will of God. Yes. And I think right there that trips up a lot of people Yes, because sometimes in my own life, there have been times where I've had to stand up or I've had to confront people and I haven't had a lot of peace in doing that where the night before is completely restless as I'm leading into it. But I know that's the path that has to be, that has to be undertaken. Yeah. No, that, that it, it, it's a superb point. And, and I think the, the point you brought out there, which I had not mentioned, uh, is that all of this idea of trying to live God's will out and discern God's will all is in the context of a relationship, a living relationship with God, right? That it has to be there. Um, to know his will, you have to know him. There has to be an ongoing relationship of prayer. So really, it, that's why prayer is key in the life of discernment. Not so much because you're praying for God to show you his will and looking for signs, but you have an ongoing living relationship with him where you, out of that relationship, begin to get a sense of what it is, who you know who he is. How do you know who he is? Well, you've prayed into him through sacred scripture where we find out who he is, where he reveals himself. And you, you begin to take on his mind, the mind of Christ. And so you got to develop an innate, instinctual, um, intuitive sense of, of what it is he would want from you in a situation and a, and a docility there, a willingness every day. I'll begin my day by saying, Lord, you know, make me open today to your will. Make me open to hearing your voice. Make me attuned. And I know how to recognize your voice, Lord, because I think about you and your voice in sacred scripture every day. So I know what your voice sounds like. Uh, from sacred scripture. And so when I hear it elsewhere, I can be attuned to it and respond to it. Right. So I think that's kind of an organic thing. It's like, you know, again, marriage, you know, when my wife and I first got married, there was a certain awkwardness in our, our doing things together and decision-making together and working through problems we'd never faced before because right. our relationship was still immature and there wasn't a lot of growth. But now after, you know, 23 years, I mean, most things we can decide, we know what the other person wants. I know her mind. She knows my mind. It doesn't take a lot of struggle to make decisions and discernments based on what direction to go in situations because we've had years of relational growth. So anyway, the point is, I think your your point is really well taken and not overstating the role of peace, I think is, I'm glad you corrected me on that because we can interpret peace as this kind of peaceful, uh, sweet, emotional, settled feeling and and not infrequently in life. When God's will leads us into tough places, we simply don't feel that at all. But we know that what actions we're taking, whatever they are, are forgiving, patient, loving, kind, self-restraint, whatever it is, chaste, um, that we know those things are God's will. And so we know uh, when we know we are in God's will, that's peace, is knowing we're in his will, not feeling we're in his will. Um, I can judge with my reason that I am doing as best I know what God would want me to do in this situation, as hellish as this may be. Um, Maximilian Colby in the starvation bunker um, is choosing to tend to each of these men as they die to care for them, and he's the last one to die. I'm sure it was an awful experience of pain, but he knew in that moment that he was doing what God would want him to do. Even so thank in, you for that correction. That was a amen. very no, important No, thank point. you. I appreciate it because what I'm, what I'm hearing, not even just you know epic, heroic cases like Maximilian Colby, but in all of our lives have when we have a particular vice that we struggle with, when we're trying to overcome that vice, there always is this tension of concupiscence of, well, depending on which one, but the, the vice kind of pulling us back a little bit and us kind of working against it as we're trying to cultivate virtue within our lives. And so I think we all know what that experience is like to have some self-restraint to, you know, exhibit temperance or chastity or any of the other virtues in the midst of the vice 
that we're, that's pulling against our capacity to choose the yes. good in this situation. Because yes. ultimately that's what it is. These vices prevent us from loving freely. They yes. prevent us from being able to have the greatest capacity of free will in the midst of the circumstances that we're facing. And, and this is why the church deems drunkenness a sin. This is my understanding. It is. Because it, it is a, it's a deliberate um, attempt to remove those faculties to remove to anything that diminishes your, your, your capacity to choose. That's correct. Deliberately is, is, is sinful, um, which yeah. drunkenness does. It, it obviously, you know, lowers the ambitions as they say. It does. Um, and, and, and gets us into trouble often. Yes. No, that, that it's a brilliant point. And, and one little thing that came into my head uh, again, um, in terms of uh, knowing you're doing God's will, when you're faced with temptations and difficulties, you know, if I'm faced with the temptation I can infallibly know that God does not want me to succumb to that temptation. I mean, that's it's helpful to just to know you don't have to figure those things out along the way, right? So if I if I'm a married man and if I see a woman and I feel tempted lust towards her, I don't have to go through a prayer process now, an Ignatian discernment whether or not I should commit adultery, right? See how that kind of works no, out. Of course, I mean it's instant. I know. So so the, the, those kind of the commandments that, that give us a clear guideline there, you know, set the set the set the boundaries. And if we are doing the will of God, we know we're far more likely to be able to judge uh, the will of God we don't know, right? Kind of the more mysterious uh, will of God that has to do with circumstances where you have many goods to choose among. But if you're not even doing the will of God, you know clearly it's very difficult to be able to do the will of God that might be more ambiguous and difficult to judge. Right. Like couples who practice natural family planning. But that's exactly one of those points where, yeah, okay, yes, you know, being adulterous is off the table, but what about when your wife's fertile? Yep, that's it. Or what about when you don't know if your wife's fertile or infertile? I mean, that, that's, that's when it becomes a lot more gray. You have to have clarity within your heart in terms of what the moral teachings are, but then there is always a place where God gives freedom for us to be yes. able to choose between a couple goods, um, which that's is true. always harder in, in discernment. It's true. So, so yeah. as we kind of bring this to a close here, I have Darn. one final qu- comment that may not bring us to a close, but... <laughs> No, but for our listeners' but, but sake, for, I think we probably should, right? So what is heaven then in the context of all of everything we're speaking about? What is heaven? What is heaven? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So incredible. <laughs> yeah. Heaven. Here here is well, there's we could we could talk well, you could talk forever about what heaven well, is. Right? Uh, <laughs> is right? that another pun? Uh, <laughs> trying to leave, slip it under the radar. So we, we know we, that's we, what it is. When we it. talk about free will then and all this tension that we're experiencing this side of heaven. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So heaven, in terms of uh, free will, the, 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 that specific question in the next world, once we pass beyond judgment, uh, and we have the vision of God face to face where everything is revealed. There's no longer need for faith. There's no, lo- no longer need for scripture or sacraments. All of that passes away because those are all mediating things. And once you have the immediate mediations fall away. So the next world is the world uh, where everything that we long for, all the longings of our heart's desires and of all of creation's groaning uh, for being set free for its own perfection is Romans chapter eight. Read that beautiful chapter. Uh, says, uh, have come to their final terminus. And human freedom then uh, is brought to its final end, right? Where we, uh, we've we achieved the goal of, of love's uh, and freedom's striving for achieving the good, right? Union with God and all of uh, the human race that has been redeemed uh, and all of creation in a sense. Uh, so, so in heaven, uh, although we are still free, 
uh, our freedom no longer includes uh, the freedom now to sin because we're in a brand new order now where God has confirmed our final choice that we made in this world, which is the world where we can co-create and choose with him in the next life. We reap the fruits of that cooperative venture, uh, that ability to choose. But in the next life, because we see face to face, because we have the, the light of glory, um, our freedom then is secured in the good if we are in paradise, in heaven with God. Obviously, hell is a different question, right? right the of eternity of hell, the eternity of heaven. But heaven ultimately, and here's the beautiful thing, and I'll just keep it short, but this is the most beautiful insight I've, I gained probably um, just under 20 years ago in, in studying what we call eschatology, the last things, Catholic Christian eschatology. I used to always think before that of kind of heaven as the the kind of the place you go after here. This is kind of the place where you go, you get tested, you have to you have to be here for a while, but then you finally escape this and you get into heaven, which is a much better place and where it's things all the bad stuff is left behind and you know, et cetera. I never really made a clear connection between this world and the next world. And then I began to realize in, in Catholic view of things that actually this world and the next world are inextricably tied together. That the next world is this world brought into its full fulfillment. Uh, into its glory, uh, that the next, cre the new creation, as we call it, uh, as Jesus says at the end of the book of Revelation, he doesn't say, I make all new things. He, may, he says, I make all things new, uh, that the whole of the visible universe, the catechism of the Catholic Church says, the whole visible universe, the whole thing will be transfigured in the end after the pattern of Christ's own risen body, the whole thing. Uh, but here's the Here's the amazing part, uh, and this is why human beings are such a big deal in this massive universe that's, what, 14.5 billion light years across, uh, is that the whole of creation will be set free and redeemed and become glorified and transfigured anew through us. We are the agents, the mediators through which that takes place for the whole created order. Uh, we are, in scripture, we are called priests. Human beings in Adam and Eve were created as priestly beings whose job was to take the creation God had made to cultivate it according to his will, uh, which is, in other words, according to the order of charity or order of love, and then to return it to him as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and love that he would receive and receive and glorify and transfigure. Now, because of sin, the pattern of that return goes through the suffering and death of Christ, right? The, the cross, that's the, that's the manner in which it's done. But we are the ones who steward this world into the next world as priests. And Christ, who is the great high priest by uh, the Son of God assuming our human nature, assuming our priesthood, by the way, we were already priests. He assumed that priesthood to himself uh, and then perfected it and then invited us to join in on his perfected priesthood where he himself with us lifts this whole created world back to the Father in praise and thanksgiving. Um, that's what heaven is. In heaven, the next world will be utterly marked by everything you and I have done in this world. Mm. Um, the beauty of the next world is dependent on the beauty we create in this world. The manner in which we live out our lives in this world shapes the next world. There's a beautiful story, uh, St. Catherine of Genoa, a 15th century saint who, who was the kind of uh, the, the queen of visions. She had the most colorful wild visions, especially of purgatory. 
um, and heaven. But she has this one vision where she sees this portion of heaven, which is just so beautiful and so beyond anything she could describe with language as people who see the next world always say. And she said there were colors there that she'd never seen. And that so when she came back, she couldn't tell you what they were because there was no analogy to them, but there were colors. There were there were colors that she'd never seen. And she this place she was looking at had these these like emerald uh, emeralds, like the book of Revelation describes, the, the gemstones and the emeralds around the New Jerusalem, the emeralds all over, and they are the most extraordinarily beautiful things she'd ever seen. And she said, I don't know if it was the angel who was with her or God, I don't remember the details, but she said, What are these? Where did they come from? And he said, Every one of those is every tear you've ever shed that I've kept and held in this world, in the next world, waiting for you so that your tears could be the source of the joy and glory of all of creation, could rejoice in the beauty of the tears you shed, that God doesn't miss anything we do in this life that we give him. Everything we do, he holds, as the psalm says, he holds our tears in a flask with great care. Uh, and then in the next world, as he makes all things new, he takes all of our joys, works, prayers, sufferings, and he makes them into something magnificent. He's an artisan mm. uh, and he loves to create. No, no. He loves to co-create yeah. with us. So do we still get to co-create in heaven? We do. We do because we continue to sing praise and glory. Uh, in other words, we produce this liturgy, this kind of co-work with him in the next world, but, but it's different. Now, what is it like? We don't know, you know, first Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, you know, we know certain things about, about what the next world will be like. Uh, the risen body of Christ itself is the template we look at to see what it's going to be like. But as to the details, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor is, nor is it even dawned on man what God has prepared for those who love him. So there's, there's an infinitely exceeding mystery to what that is, but the co-creation will always continue for all ages. It'll be an entirely different mode in the new world. Because the secondary will, causality is always there. Always there. He doesn't ever obliterate secondary causality. The cooperation is always going on, but it goes on in an entirely new mode and it goes on in a place that is eternally safe. So in the liturgy, when it says that heaven and earth are full of your glory, this is what you're speaking this about. This is it. That's it. And so our role, I always say, um, people say, you know what? Marriage, the purpose of marriage is to get each other to heaven. I say, okay, there's something true about that. But actually, you know what? The purpose of marriage is also to get heaven here. Mm. In other words, it's to wed heaven and earth, is to bring them together now, not to wait till the next world. This is, you know, salvation is not in a, an escape plan. It's a rescue plan. It's not about escaping this world. It's about rescuing this world now with us. And so, right, heaven and earth are filled with your glory, but earth is only filled with your glory when we glorify God in our bodies and in our lives. Uh, that that's 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 the way that works. And as we've been saying the whole time, we are the agents who choose that glory or not. We are. We choose to cooperate with His grace and to live His will in every circumstance uh, that we face ourselves in. That's it. That it. That's the choice. That's the choice we face in in, in every every day in every single way. And and the very last thing I'll say again is prayer. Prayer is a privileged means for us to cooperate with God, right? The, we cooperate with God by doing good works and doing what we do in our lives, et cetera. Those are all profound and powerful. But, but prayer in the end as a priestly act is the supreme way because it's the way by which we cooperate with God by taking everything that we do and everything in the whole creation. Prayer can encompass the whole thing. My, my actions and deeds can only encompass this room and the people around me, but my prayer can encompass the entirety of everything in it because he's given me that dignity. 
um, and I can consecrate the whole of creation in my prayer um, and lift it to him. I can pick up this 14.5 billion light year across the universe in my prayer and lift it to him uh, as an offering and say, you gave this all to me. Now I return it. It's yours. Accept me with it. <laughs> well, we'll leave that for another conversation yes, yes, <laughs> because I do have questions about prayer and the metaphysics of prayer. Oh, I love that. No, <laughs> so that would be a we'll wonderful, save that for a that whole other episode. Well, Tom, as always, such a great gift to having you on the show. Um, thank you for helping me grow in, in my understanding of my own free will. And myself as well. Yeah, and and I pray that this has been insightful. a gift to all the listeners as always. God bless, man. God bless everybody. <laughs> thank you, brother. You got it. Man, I'm so grateful that God has brought Dr. Tom Neal into my life. So what's my takeaway from this episode? Simply that our choices bear weight and we need to live with more intentionality. Not in a triumphant, I can do this sort of way, or in a fearful, oh man, I hope I don't mess up sort of way, but in a loving and invitational way. See, God gave us free will so that we might be shares in his divine life. When our will conforms to his will, we find freedom in the fullness of our personality. We are free to love and dance and be generous. In other words, if we walk humbly with our God, we will become saints. And my dear friends, my dear listeners, that is my sincere hope for each and every single one of you, that you may honor your free will, that you may exercise it in whatever particular circumstance that you find yourself in today, so that you can be the saint and the holy person and the free person that God desires you to be. So stay connected to him, love him, invite him into your experience, bring him into your, 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 your life, and you will be better for it. So don't forget to find me on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. Look forward to, to seeing you, dialoguing with you, chatting with you on those platforms. And God bless everybody. Be good.